Arizona, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or at WPLN.org. This is Nashville as our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We'll go deeper into the news of the day and bring your perspectives you didn't know you were missing. Join us as we journey into the identity of our city and region. 14 months ago, the FBI raided the offices of state representatives Robin Smith, Glenn Cassida, and Todd Warner. That kicked off a federal corruption probe at the state capitol. Then yesterday morning, Smith was indicted on wire fraud charges. Not too long after, after she resigned. Here to explain the scandal and its players is WPLN senior reporter Chas Sisk. Chas, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So this is a mess. Give us a brief breakdown of what happened exactly and the charges that Republican Representative Robert Smith is facing. Well, like you said, she is facing one count of wire fraud. And uh, this basically relates to a scheme to, uh, to, to, to divert some, some money, state money towards a mailing company that uh, she was associated with and then receiving kickbacks um, for, for that. So, and uh, this is very much related to the other lawmaker you mentioned there, Glenn Cassida, and, and one of his senior aides uh, who had supported him through the years in, in a mailing company that he had set up. So, you know, Smith is not the only lawmaker to leave the state legislature this year in scandal. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. We've had a couple of other uh, lawmakers before her um, that have left this year. One is uh, Katrina Robinson. She is a state senator from Memphis who was expelled earlier this just a month ago. Uh, she's the first state lawmaker um, in the Senate's history to be expelled actually uh, from the chamber while sitting in, in office. Um, she was expelled for uh, for she was accused and, and actually convicted of um, misusing federal funds for her personal business. And then uh, last week, we had a state lawmaker, Brian Kelsey, also a state senator, announced that he's not going to run for re-election this fall. He had been indicted back in the fall on five counts uh, related to campaign finance violations. That uh, all stemmed from a, a bid he made for Congress in 2016. He ran for an open seat in Congress and was unsuccessful. The accusation there is that he used state money given to his state campaign. He illegally uh, sent that through some uh, political action committees um, so that it could be used for his federal campaign, which is against the law. All right. That's quite a list. Um, (laughs) You know, you've covered politics here in Tennessee for a long time. Yes. Now, you have an understanding of who in the political structure has influence and how they wield it. What's your impression of former House Speaker Glenn Cassida? Yeah, and you know, and I referred to him in passing here a little bit earlier, but I think in a lot of ways, understanding what's happened to Representative Smith really involves understanding the role that Glenn Cassidy has played in the state legislature, really going back more than a decade in, in Tennessee politics. Okay. So Glenn Cassidy, um, I think, is probably familiar to a lot of people here in Middle Tennessee. He's a state representative from Franklin, uh, Williamson County, actually more closer to the Thompson Station area. And um, he was elected in the early 2000s and um, basically made his way through the ranks of the Republican caucus um, by being known as a person who could get things done within the caucus. Um, he, was, he was good at um, recruiting candidates to run for office and a really good fundraiser. Um, his, his role really uh, jumped in 2010 when Republicans took control of the state legislature, took, they took control of the House, they had, had control of the Senate. 
and uh, he was given uh, he was very much involved in in, uh, in 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 the strategy for that campaign and raising money for that campaign to get more Republicans elected to the state House representatives. And so what that did is that really made him uh, a power broker in the state legislature from 2010 on until about 2019 when he was finally elected House Speaker. Um, so Glenn Cassida was a, a person who had a lot of allies through uh, his recruitment of candidates, helping them win office, and uh, then, of course, could could uh, muster a lot of votes for legislation, also had a lot of connections in fundraising. So um, Robin Smith was a person who had been involved in Tennessee politics for quite a while, um, starting around the late 2000s uh, when she was the Tennessee Republican Party chairwoman. And so was working very closely with Glenn Cassida on those campaigns to take the legislature. And then the two of them have – she's remained in politics, involved in a lot of different ways as a consultant, and then a few years ago elected to the state legislature and has been a, a, an ally of his in the legislature. Now, has Cassida been wrapped up in controversy before this? Yeah, I mean, th- definitely. I mean, part of it is um, – you know, there's always been this reputation around Glenn Cassida that he was uh, one of my colleagues at the, st- at the state legislature, another reporter um, – described it as the reputation as a lovable rogue. Hmm. He um, kind of was known as a person who um, had a good time with lawmakers, um, was a backslapper, that kind of thing, um, while at the same time, as I said, uh, effective in mustering votes, getting things done, raising money. Um, you know, so that um, so there's always been that bit of reputation. It actually probably, it certainly delayed his becoming speaker, um, you know, because he, he lost an election to Beth Harwell, um, a national representative um, back in the early 2010s because of that. Um, I think because of that reputation. So, um, you know, he he had that reputation, and then uh, when he became speaker, um, he uh, began to to um, some people began to chafe under his leadership, and um, that resulted in the release of some some texts between him and his top aide, Cade Cawthorn. Um, some of which were racist, some of which had some very lewd descriptions of women, mm. um, and those kinds of things. And so, um, in 2019, he was he, January 2019. He was elected speaker, and then seven months later, he was he faced a vote of no confidence from his um, from his caucus. Um, so that's th- in a lot of ways that's the the pre story to to this latest um, this latest scandal. So let's go back to Robin Smith. Yeah, what is she facing now? Um, well, she faces that one count of wire of uh, wire fraud. Um, she will be appearing this afternoon at a plea hearing, um, where she'll, you know, plead guilty to, to presumably that or, or something related to that. Um, she also uh, the penalty for that, I believe, is is a uh, twenty five thousand dollars. It's up to twenty years in prison. Unlikely she would she would face all of that uh, at this plea hearing. So um, and certainly she's given a seat in the legislature. So that's that's been lost at this point. So we're going to find out if she's cooperating or not a little bit later. Yeah, we will. Today. We will. Yeah. So what does this tell us mm-hmm. about Republican Party leadership here in the state? Well, um, you know, it's um, it tells us. Quite a bit. I think one of the things that it's important to understand about the Republican Party in Tennessee is um, a lot of what it built its majority on is the idea that it would it would run the state better and cleaner than the Democratic Party had before it. There have been a number of corruption scandals at the state legislature. Two of the most prominent are uh, Rocky Top and uh, Tennessee Waltz. Uh, Rocky Top dates back to the 1980s. It was a bribery scandal involving bingo parlors and horse racing and and trading votes for for money. Um, and then in the 2000s, uh, um, Tennessee Waltz, there was uh, yet another bribery scandal uh, and a sting operation that ensnared mostly Democrats. And so that was mm-hmm. um, you know Republicans always promised that they would do this better. Uh, the leadership at the at the legislature it has like it has they have tried to foster the reputation that they are that they are. Um, 
they are cleaner than most other lawmakers. Uh, the Speaker of the State Senate, Randy McNally, he wore a wire during Rocky Top back in the 1980s when he was a first-term lawmaker and was approached. He instead went to the FBI, famously wore a wire, and um, has, has always tried to foster this rep reputation for, for probity. And then, um, you know, Cameron Sexton, uh, the current House Speaker who uh, came in after Glenn Cassida, it's been very clear that he's cooperating with the FBI on this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sort of uh, his role in um, in bringing this to light, it, it hasn't exactly been explicit, but it's very clear from reading the indictment that a lot of what Robin Smith is being accused of doing in terms of um, lobbying on behalf of this of this mailing firm and um, and um, receiving money. A lot of the work that she was doing was pressuring the Speaker's office to look the other way um, at this relationship. So, um, so uh, you know, he's, I think he's trying to build on that reputation um, and, you know, hold himself out as a person who's, who's um, going to keep corruption out of the legislature, at least fought, root out some of the corruption that's been at the legislature. What type of confidence should we have as voters and constituents in not only the Republican leadership's ability to kind of tamp down and attempt to eliminate corruption, but politicians in general? Well, I mean, you know, I think you, um, it, it's important for voters to do their homework. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, people are, the, the, these representatives are accountable to uh, the voters, and um, it's not unheard of for someone to be facing these, be facing these corruption allegations and still get reelected. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so, um, it's, uh, at the end of the day, you know, lawmakers can, can do things to police themselves. There are, there are watchdogs. There's the Tennessee Registry of Election Finance. Um, there, are, uh, there are groups that over, oversee the lobbyists. Um, there is the FBI as well um, that's often looking into these allegations. But, I mean, the voters are ultimately, a lot of times, as I said, you'll see people reelected um, even after some of these things have come to light. Mm -hmm. um, so how would you break this down for us listeners? Like, help us understand for folks in Smith's district, but yeah. across Tennessee, at the end of the day, what does all this really mean? Well, um, so I, mean, I think it's, first of all, um, it's important to understand the way in which personal relationships uh, matter at the state legislature. Um, you know, Robin Smith and, and Glenn Cassidy have had this longtime um, partnership at the, at, you know, at the, at the, at the, in politics in general, even pre, uh, even before she became a state lawmaker herself. Um, also, I think um, uh, the influence that a lot of the um, legislative staff have at, at, the, at the state legislature, um, Glenn Cassida's uh, top aide, who we haven't talked a lot about, but who set up this this company um, that is at the center of this probe. I mean, Cade Cawthorn is his name. There's been a very close relationship between the two, and I think that um, you know a lot of what you see here this with this latest scandal spins out of um, the effort to kind of keep him as a as an aide or as a as an as someone that that could help Glenn Cassidy in politics even after, you know, he'd been removed from his position at the legislature. Are you expecting coming indictments for Cassidy or Cawthorn? Well, I mean, that's, that's, uh, remains to be seen whether we're going to get that. I mean, I think reading the indictment of Robin Smith, uh, it does not mention Glenn Cassidy or Kate Cawthorn explicitly. It actually refers to them as individual one and individual two. But it's, it's very clear who they are. It says individual one, I believe it is, is a, a person who is the House Speaker between these dates. So okay. clearly only one person that that, 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 that matches. So um, it's very clear reading that, who they're talking about. And um, it's very clear that the FBI believes that they had a direct involvement in this in this scheme. So, um, so if there was a charge against Robin Smith, you would expect that they are certainly weighing some charges for, uh, for other people who were involved in it.
So what are you looking for next as this story develops? Well, I think it'd be interesting to see what uh, Robin Smith says at her plea hearing today. Um, as you referred to earlier, it will be interesting to see if, um, you know, if she does provide more information in, in, into how this all worked. Um, and also what, what charges come for, if charges come for Cade Cawthorn and, uh, and Representative Cassida, and also if whether other lawmakers are brought up into this, because um, mm. the statement from the House Speaker's office um, was that it's clear that the FBI is looking at allegations of corruptions that, that targeted the entire Republican caucus. So um, it might be that there may be some others that are perhaps um, seen as part of this. Okay. When can we expect any action on that front? Well, uh, you know, that's hard, to, that's hard to say. It's been 14 months since that FBI raid happened at the state capitol. Um, so it's taken quite a while for the FBI to make its case. And so um, I mean, certainly there'll be some developments this afternoon, but we'll have to see what happens beyond that. All right. Well, that is Chas Sisk, senior editor at WPLN News. Chas. Thank you so much for joining the show and for providing some insight on this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we're going to explore just how livable our city and region is for people with disabilities. So don't go away. This is Nashville. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special segment we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, to hold our officials accountable, and to pull together resources and hacks to empower community members. Today, we're talking accessibility. To kick it off, we're going to head out to Murfreesboro, specifically to the corner of Robert Rose Drive and Medical Center Parkway. If you're not familiar, this is a loud and busy intersection with four lanes of traffic, so it's a little tough to navigate, especially if you're blind. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, met Quinn Howard and his new service dog, Yuri, at that corner. Hey, my name is Quinn Howard and I am 27 years old and I was born with RP, also known as retinitis pigmentosa. Quinn has some central vision in his right eye and almost none at all in his left. He's a longtime pro at navigating using a cane and just three weeks ago he got Yuri, who is his very first guide dog. One of the things Yuri is trained to do when they're out and about together is find the curb where Quinn will need to cross the street and stop. Oh, find the curb. Forward to the curb. Good boy. Specifically, Yuri stops on top of the truncated domes. Truncated domes are texture strips that kind of look like Lego pieces. They have bumps on top that let Quinn know that he has reached a crossing point, and the direction of the bumps point him in the direction he needs to cross. I can feel the texture with my feet. So I would um, find this, reorient myself <clears throat> with, okay, am I keeping straight here or am I turning right or left? And we'll keep going. Quinn can't drive, and Murfreesboro, which is where he lives, does not have a paratransit system like Davidson County does. That means that getting around on foot is a huge part of his life. 
but the infrastructure around him doesn't always make it easy. There's one intersection in particular that he crosses a lot that's actually very dangerous for him. Part of the problem? The curb is rounded and the truncated dome is smack dab in the middle of it, with the bumps pointing him diagonally, directly into their intersection and right into traffic. I hate this <laughs> with a passion. If I'm, I don't know where to line up sometimes. And I notice they've got the, they've got the little oh, crosswalk buttons they here. They have that, but it doesn't have any sound. So the, the crossing guard here, you can press it. You can push it, and visually it'll tell you to do a countdown, but for me it doesn't, doesn't work for auditory. There's one here and there's several on down the, on the neighbor, neighboring streets. Same issue, they don't beep. So they've got the truncated domes, which helps you find the curb, but it'll point you right into traffic. <laughs> and they've got the crosswalk, yep. but it doesn't have any sound, so it's no good. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is not this is not the best crossing for you. No, it's not. And I mean, I'm I'm fortunate because I do have some vision and I do have extensive cane skills and crossing streets. I cross this street often, right? But I don't like it because. It doesn't feel comfortable. We have invited a panel of experts to talk about what Nashville is doing to make the city easier to navigate for everyone who lives here. Joining me now is Metro ADA coordinator Jerry Hall, James Brown, who serves on the Mayor's Advisory Council for People with Disabilities, and Dr. Tonika East, the Associate Director of Career Services at Kentucky State University. Tanika, Jerry, and James, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for joining us. James, I want to start with you. I understand you're legally blind. What stood out to you about Quinn's experience navigating that busy intersection? Well, Quinn's experience is uh, one that most of us face, especially when you're dealing with a busy intersection like he's looking at, you know, every day in his neighborhood. You know, and one of the things uh, I think we're going to have to do uh, as a disabled community, uh, joining with the community at large, is look at solutions we've never looked at before. Um, you know, right now, TDOT, uh, which I'm an employee of TDOT, I work in road safety. So we're looking at coming up with some uh, apps that maybe you could integrate uh, this with maybe your Google Maps, hmm. and it would actually know because all the signals just about nowadays in some way or another are smart uh, so there's an interconnectivity with all of these signals and so you know I use my app as a blind person uh, weekly to navigate the streets just to you know kind of tell me what direction is the right way to go and um, as most people do and so why can't we use the smart technology that already exists um, and plug it into our iPhone apps that we already use and sort of make that happen. So I can just pull up my phone and my phone will tell me when that audible pedestrian signal is going off. And so it's kind of thinking about possibilities we've never thought before, being innovative and using the current technology that we have to make our lives better. Jerry, is that something that you are advising for as, as the Metro ADA coordinator? I would certainly consider that. Uh, James and I have worked on numerous projects together in the past, and I can tell you that uh, technology is going to be leading the way with a lot of this. Uh, TTY phones for years were required. 
if you see a TTY phone anywhere now, it's going to have dust on it. Technology has really moved forward and people are using different methods of communicating. And I think the same thing can be said for the pedestrian signals. And I do like the direction that James mentioned. Now, James. Khalil. Yes, sir. Yes. If you go to a city like Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. The pedestrian signals are much more friendly. Uh, for example, they'll tell you, they'll basically tell you it's time to cross. There's not a sort of chirping system that sounds like birds. Oh, that yeah. could be birds, but you can't tell where they're coming from. Uh, as blind people, you know, we talk about this among ourselves all the time that we don't really trust them um, because we can't half hear them. The traffic might be loud. Uh, and we do also depend on parallel traffic as well. So we don't always need the pedestrian signals. Um, but um, I think there are other pedestrian signals used in other cities that we could definitely pick up on. And, you know, it should be pretty much policy altogether to say which city is doing this better and try and emulate that. Yeah, I lived in Los Angeles for years and I remember when they brought in the new pedestrian signals, they told you to wait, they told you when to go. It was and pretty audible throughout the entire block. And I'm asking you as a, as a member of the mayor's committee for people with disabilities, have you raised this issue with the mayor? Well, the communication has been a little bit stifled. Um, as you know, the mayor's, the mayor's office has been in flux. And so I've been a part of the mayor's advisory committee for people with disabilities now for three and a half, possibly four years. And since that time, we've had three different mayors. And every time we start getting that good communication with the mayor, it gets flipped over and we get a new mayor. And so the communication has been a little hard. Mm. That seems to be difficult. I wonder if they can just kind of follow up on what the previous administration did. But that's another question I'll ask a little bit later. Tanika, you are a Nashville native. And in the past, you worked at Smyrna helping adults with disabilities find employment. You also taught special ed at Metro schools and your daughter is blind. Tell me this. What are what is one of the most important things that you've learned that our listeners may not be aware of? Hey, let me tell you this. I feel like I'm in great company because mm -hmm. Quinn is one of my former students from MTSU. Wow. And James and I have worked together for the last 11 years, and I've only been in Kentucky for two and a half years, so I feel like I'm home <laughs> because That's James right. and Quinn have been a great mentor to my daughter. Mm. who is uh, now a junior at Kentucky School for the Blind, who is great rivals to Tennessee School for the Blind, who have <laughs> laid the foundation. So I know I'm in great company right now. Accessibility, I think we missed the mark for thinking that the ramps closest to a location or building are accessible to our blind community. Hmm. Because even when talking about venues and things of that nature, when we talk about being visually impaired, it just brings a different dynamic to it. And I gave this example um, a few weeks ago when I was talking about like graduations, they say we provide handicapped seating, which is usually in the back mm -hmm. because you know, that's where the ramp accessible 
seatings are. But if you're visually impaired, you want to have the same experience to be able to see your loved one. And you have to make a lot of calls, a lot of changes. It's like jumping through hoops and yo-yos. And, you know, I come from the advocacy standpoint. I say God was preparing me as a professional to be the parent of a child with a disability. So I, I totally concur with some things that that James and Quinn are both experiencing being Nashville home and lived in Murfreesboro for 15 years. But I think when, and Jerry, nice to meet you. I think you when too, we and talk I have about- a grandson, I'm sorry, I have a grandson at Tennessee School for the Blind. Well, hey, that's the place to be, right, James? We we moved here by default for employment, not be, by choice, by force, definitely. Mm-hmm. So they they have some great folks over there. I think we we do have to think about technology, but it comes down to you know the small things when we talk about accessibility and directional things. Like even if it's the bus stop, like how do they know there's trained to listen for the direction but where is it really telling them for the bus stop and we make it go back to the old paging systems i'm not sure jerry hmm. if they could provide our students or adults with visual impairments a paging system hmm. and could potentially page them so okay we got some work to do Yes, yes, we do. That's why we're fortunate to have you all on to discuss this. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to WPLN. This is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. So we're talking about accessibility for people with disabilities here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. So we've got a question from Beth Thielman. She has cerebral palsy and she uses a wheelchair. Her primary concern is about sidewalks. How are they going to make sure that it's a process where the community members are actually involved and our, our input is heard on it. And how can we make sure that there is accountability in that process? Oftentimes people who are in positions of political power will say, you know, we're here for you. We want to hear from the people we represent, but then the people speak and it's kind of a different matter sometimes. Jerry, what's your answer for Beth? Yes. Uh, My answer for that is, uh, for example, when we went through our process for creating our transition plan for our sidewalks, pedestrian signals, uh, crosswalks, we did ask for input from the disability community. We had some meetings with uh, various stakeholders. Uh, Another thing that we do, I am available for anybody that wants to discuss the issues that are in hand today. And I, I think James can attest that Uh, I am very open to receiving uh, calls and I try to get the information to where it needs to go. Our Nashville Department of Transportation, of course, is responsible for the right of way. And we try to take concerns for the citizen and throw them in uh, the priority list uh, a little bit higher because we don't know where each individual lives in town. So that is really helpful to us. I always say we can't fix what we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And you know, so is this does this tie into what, you know, James mentioned earlier about the inconsistency, having different administrations come in and having basically to start from zero all over again in addressing the concerns, addressing the resources that are needed is what can the city do? Should we have a permanent office 
um, in the mayor's office, a permanent department that really addresses this so actual change can happen and it's not a reset every election cycle? I can comment, I think, on that. Okay. Kyle. This is, uh, you know, this is an interesting topic. You know, Houston has um, an office um, for people with disabilities inside the mayor's office. And, um, you know, from what I've seen on social media, it's been super effective. And it's, it was designed just for that purpose. Um, you know, someone in the mayor's office uh, that has the mayor's ear uh, that can relate these issues that are very important uh, to our community, you know, to the mayor. And, and it's not just to the mayor. It's that, you know, when, you know, when people are discussing things with the mayor, it's normally in a group setting. So sort of all the people are around the mayor. And so it's sort of interjecting that voice of disability um, into every conversation uh, that's had with the city so that people with disabilities aren't left out. And I think that would be so important for us to do, you know, as Nashville, as the it city who wants to be, you know, the it city for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be tremendous if we could do it. Tanika, advocacy is important. And you taught your daughter how to be a staunch advocate, but not every disabled person gets that type of guidance. And they're not that lucky, frankly. What can people do to become more knowledgeable about the resources that are available to them? Well, when you talk about advocacy, it goes so far. As soon as I got here, I was appointed to our governor's council for exceptional children. That was because someone found out that I had done work in Tennessee. Really, I felt like that I have started over and it has taken two and a half years to just champion where are the resources and how differ they are from state to state. But it takes a lot of groundwork. And I, I man, the people, the people that have encountered and have me on their board of directors just to even call are so fortunate because I do, you want somebody with authenticity mm -hmm. to know where the go, where to go. Yeah. And you know, to have those resources available for people to have, to be knowledgeable about, uh, knowledgeable about it, and to have, you know, this board of directors personally for people, it really addresses a lot of the concerns because sometimes there's concerns that come up that often miss us and we don't mm -hmm. even think about. Martez Williams has MS. His concern is about his safety as a black man who uses a pair of canes. How would the police respond to me if... I'm ordered to get out of the vehicle and I reach for my canes because my canes are black. Or I reach under my legs to pick my leg up so I can get out of the vehicle if I'm ordered to get out. Just because I have a disability and I am a man of color, <laughs> I didn't want you know to be uh, misconstrued that I was reaching for a weapon. And so Martez's concerns helped amend the Precious Cargo Act to allow police to see if someone has a disability when they look up their plate. What else can be done to make sure that Martez stays safe? James, what's your response to that? Uh, the Precious Cargo Act is a state law. I was definitely for it when it got passed. And the, the interesting thing about state laws is they're passed at a state level, but they're executed on a local level. Hmm. And so if no one at Nashville um, you know, Nashville Police Department knows about this law, then 
they're not number one going to know about the you know the registry it might get flagged to them so they need to be educated about it number two um, the public in Nashville needs to be educated about it because there's lots of African Americans lots of people who you know feel like they could be stereotyped and you know and all because of a misunderstanding could be shot could be killed um, and so we want to try we have to try and educate the public um, that this is a law that's important and if you want to get on this registry because it is volunteer um, that um, you know you can call the specific number um, you know which Martez knows and you can actually be put on the registry and when a policeman is pulling you over they're putting in this information and they instantly know hey this person might be in a wheelchair uh, this person has a cane and they're gonna they might reach for that cane um, you know people who are deaf you know lots of times there's huge communication barriers the policemen think that they're just being difficult or they're on drugs when really they can't hear anything so uh, it's just little things like that that the police department must know and that our community also has to know to make us more safe and a more inclusive community all right, now we've got just a minute before we go to break. I want to thank all of you. This is a fantastic conversation, but I want to address this question to all three of you. What do people without disabilities, what do we miss when we discuss accessibility for our fellow citizens? Where can we go not only to learn more, but to do more? James, briefly, let's start with you. Uh, first is an attitudinal change. Uh, people who are blind, people with disabilities, you know, we're not aliens were not from outer space and really we're just like everybody else um you know blind people we have smart ones uh we have people who aren't so smart we have tall we have big noses we have short noses and i say all that just to say um that you know i'm not daredevil you know i'm not a superhero i'm also not super incompetent and a lot of times people try to put me in either of those two categories and really i'm just a regular guy and i'm just like everybody else jerry yeah i certainly agree with what james said and just from a personal standpoint i try to teach my grandchildren uh to be uh cognizant of everybody treat everybody fairly i've actually taken my youngest grandson to some of the mayor's advisory committee meetings uh, just so he has a better awareness of what's going on. I think if we can reach people when they're young, they grow up with that and it's just a second nature to them. And Tanika, we're giving you the last word. Yes, I think um, just to ditto what the panel has said, of course, Vanderbilt Disability Pathfinders is a great resource for kind of a catch all but disability comes in all facets. They all don't look alike. And I think um, just consumers in general, that we try to encompass all of a one size fit all model. And it doesn't necessarily work out that way. And I think it starts at a young age. We have to start educating our younger students because for my daughter, she started out in Rutherford County. She was the only student without a disability. And then the next six months, God blessed her with the disability and that was losing her sight. Mm -hmm. And I tell her that God was using her as a five-year-old because he saw how she reacted to students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. 
And that's all the time we have for our panel. I really want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you to Jerry Hall, James Brown, and Dr. Tanika East for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we'll invite community members with disabilities to respond to what they just heard from our panel and to share what they would like to see change. In the meantime, tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. In this special segment called Citizen Nashville, we're answering your questions and gathering resources to help you navigate life in our city and region. This hour is all about accessibility. Before the break, we heard from some folks who are responsible for making our city and region livable for people with disabilities. Now, we wanna get some reactions from people with disabilities and to get their ideas on what needs to be done at the city level to improve living conditions. I'd like to introduce three guests, Rhonda Clark from Nashville and Steve Norman and Alexandra Job, who live in Murfreesboro. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, Alexandra, let's start with you. You're a freshman at MTSU, but you grew up here in Nashville and you've used a wheelchair since you were a kid. Tell us a little bit about your experience. Um, yes, when I was younger, it was a lot easier because um, I had my parents and my sister to help me. But as I got older, um, I had to become more independent. And I realized like how difficult um, just like being around the city was going around the city and um, learning how to navigate things. There are just like things that people don't even think about. Um, mm. I remember it was like hard, just like not being able to get through doorways because my wheelchair was too um, big. And like there were personal businesses that I wanted to go to with my friends and like they would have like trucks and I couldn't like go to like flower trucks or like little businesses like that had um, like clothing and stuff like that. And they're like, just like events and stuff that are held on the grass. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, that my wheelchair is like hard to get through. So there was, there was just like a lot of things that um, people don't think about. So you listened to our last segment, what really stood out to you? I was really liking the um, end of the conversation when you guys were talking about um, the way that you're treated because you have a disability. I was wanting to add to that because um, I do think that it um, comes from like the younger generation. I always had to go in front of my class and say like, hi, my name's Alexandra. I have a disability to make the people in my class feel more comfortable. And um, I never felt comfortable. And so I feel like if people who are younger see people with disabilities and they're allowed to ask questions instead of being shut down by their parents because I have a lot of people little kids who come up to me and they're like why are you in a wheelchair and their parents are like no don't ask that and it's like you're teaching your kids to ignore people with disabilities to avoid people with disabilities and it's okay if the person with a disability is not comfortable answering the question but have them tell them that you know mm -hmm. um instead of their parents um so like I love when kids are curious and are exposed to people with disabilities so I really liked the end of that conversation. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. Now, Rhonda Clark, I understand that you have cerebral palsy and like Alexandra, you also use a wheelchair. 
What are your top concerns about accessibility here in Nashville? Thank you for having me today, first of all. I have been in Nashville now since 1996, and I'll tell my age, I'm proud of it actually. I'm gonna be 53 in July. My biggest concerns, um, sidewalks and sidewalk issues. Um, the lack of sidewalks in Metro Nashville are even where I live, um, on my street, I live right off of Thompson Lane where it intersects with Riley Parkway. And since I've been here, it's been in the master plan to get sidewalks. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that part of the part of Thompson Lane is owned by is funded by Metro and part is funded by state. So it's it, I wonder where it is in the master plan. Mm. You know, that's one issue. And then another issue that really needs to be addressed in Tennessee as a whole is transportation. Because um, I can't drive. I use a power wheelchair, so I can't take an Uber either because it doesn't fold. So unless I have somebody to drive me in my um, accessible vehicle, I can't go anywhere uh, within a timely manner. This has been the biggest struggle for me in Nashville. And I know that's a struggle for a lot of people that live in Nashville because Access Ride, which is the paratransit system in Davidson County is restricted to Davidson County. Everybody should have the same access to get to work no matter what that looks like to, you know, go where they want to go, live where they want to live and be who they were created to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Steve Norman, I want to turn to you. I understand you lost your vision at age 22 due to diabetes. As a blind man, you face slightly different challenges with accessibility, but I'm sure you can also relate to what Rhonda and Alexandra have shared. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me on and thank you for considering this topic. This is a very important topic that's often overlooked. I share a lot of the same concerns as uh, the other two guests, one being transportation. Uh, you know, there is a paratransit system in Nashville, uh, access ride throughout Davidson County, but does not extend to Rutherford County or, you know, uh, the, the other counties surrounding Nashville. I, I lived in Nashville from 1987. Uh, yeah, I, I moved to Nashville in 1987, and then I moved to Murfreesboro in 2010, and I lost my sight in 2004. But coming from Nashville, where Access Ride was an availability, and coming to Murfreesboro, where being being in that environment, it, it's really rough. I live in an apartment uh, complex where there is no sidewalk outside of my uh, complex uh, and it, it runs off of a highway. Uh, and hmm. so cars are speeding by 50, 60 miles per hour. And I have a guide dog, sort of like Quinn. And when, I, when, when the trainer came down to, to assess my environment, she said, it's not safe for you to walk around your neighborhood. And so, wow. and so basically it's, it's, it, you know, it's a real problem. And I've, I've talked to the city planner about it um, and nothing has been done uh, about the sidewalk outside of 
my complex and you know it's, it's it, there are there are many issues and one of the things that I reverberated with with uh, the last conversation the last segment uh, was you know figuring out how to get awareness to the people in charge and the people who you know uh, James mentioned that Houston there's an office in the mayor's office uh, that that constantly uh, meets with the mayor on every issue. And I think that's a that's a great idea. But yeah, I think we need to take a take a look at how we get information about the disabled to uh, the people who are in charge of making the city accessible. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WPLN's This Is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about accessibility for people with disabilities here in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. So, Steve, you talked about talking to a city planner to put a sidewalk on your street with 60 mile an hour traffic. And how long ago was that? That This was in 2015, I believe, 2014 or 2015. So seven to six years ago, you've talked to them and no action has been taken. I mean, how does that make you feel about the city's seriousness in addressing not only your concerns, but providing needed safe resources? Well, obviously, I, I know that their hands are full, um, but it, it makes me feel ignored and it makes mm -hmm. me feel unimportant and it makes me feel put on hold. My life is on hold. I, you know, I, I've wanted to go places that I could not go. I've wanted to, to walk my dog. You know, there, there's a lot of things that I've wanted to do and I, it's been put on hold just for a sidewalk that, that would extend about maybe 150, 200 feet and just kind of improved uh, area for, 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 you know, blind traverse. Seven years is a real long time to make that hold. So I, I want to ask all of you, what questions do you have for the powers that be, that people who can take this action and get things off of hold, like our city planners that Steve is talking about? Let's start with you, Rhonda. I think what the um, powers that be so to speak, quote unquote, need to think about when they're making decisions on improvements. They need to spend a day in the life of any one of us on this um, interview mm -hmm. and really be in it all the way, whether you're visually impaired or a chair user or whatever, just be in it and experience it and then go back to the drawing board, but don't push people off. I mean, I, like I said, when I was talking about the sidewalks earlier, I had asked about that. I, I moved to my current location in 2001. So it's been 21 years and I still have no sidewalk. Yeah. You know, I actually use the bike lane um, one Sunday to come home from church in my chair on Thompson Lane, mind you. Hmm. Someone had to follow behind me with their flashers on so I wouldn't get hit. <laughs> so there's, and that's just only one issue. There's several. I mean, when I used to work, um, I'll say the corporate world, I would have to get to work an hour, an hour and a half to two and a half hours early using Access Ride to ensure that I got to work on time. So the demand for 
sidewalks and accessible transportation is across the board. It's, it's needed across the state, mm. frankly. I, I hear that. So, you know, Alexandra, what do you want to say? What questions do you have for the people who can take action on this? Um, one question I would ask um, people to think of when they are like creating things for people with disabilities is will you think about what not just what we need but what will help us live our lives because um like handicap accessible buildings are it's like we need them yes and they're required but they're the smaller things that could actually help us like Things like sinks that have open spaces at the bottom for people in wheelchairs that can pull in and actually wash their hands, you know, mm -hmm. um, stalls that are wide enough for people to turn their chairs around, front desk areas that are like shortened so that people can see and hear people with disabilities who are shorter, um, fire safety plans for people with disabilities, transportation, as they were saying, um, grocery stores, like an efficient way for people in wheelchairs to reach higher shelves, um, classrooms that are big enough for people in wheelchairs, because I always struggled in high school to be able to turn my uh, papers in because I could never get between any of the tables. Um, like any, like anything, you know, that um, is just like, not something that is like needed, but something that would help us be more comfortable and like be able to live our lives comfortably. Mm -hmm. Steve, we only have a few seconds left, but I want to give you the last word. Thank you. Yes. You know, it, it, there are several things to consider, but you know, it, it takes a model, a model city like Denver. I, I've been out in Denver for nine months and Denver has a great transportation system and Nashville, if it wants to be the it city, then it's going to have to address the needs of the disabled. That's Steve Norman, Alexandra Job, and Rhonda Clark. We want to thank everyone who joined us for this hour of This is Nashville. We've rounded up some resources for you from today's episode. Check it out at thisisnashville.org. That's where you can find all of our episodes. Tune in tomorrow as we take a look back at the artistic heritage of North Nashville and explore what's to come. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon, Michaela Elias is our technical director, and our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Special thanks to Martez Williams, Jimmy Bain, and the folks at Bridges for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Shout out to everyone who reached out over social media. By the way, you can too. Find us on Facebook and tweet us at This Is Nashville and fill out our community survey online so we can focus on topics that are important to you. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.